Yo, 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 what's up, everybody? We are back. It's Mini Making 101. I'm Chris. I'm DJ. And today we are continuing our journey following John Verbeke's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lecture series. This episode is on the religion of no religion. Bum, bum, bum. What does that mean? We're about to find out. And I forgot my notes from last week. I left my notebook at home. So DJ here is going to help us recap our previous episode, and then we're going to jump on in. I'm going to get us live over on the book of many faces over here. Mm. I can get this uh, notepad working as a mouse pad. Here we go. Here we go. All the little things that we got to do, you know. Where's the AI to do all this for us, man? I want it now. We're going live. What's up, Facebook fam? We are in the house. It's actually a podcast in our special series, Meaning Making 101, covering Jabra Vega's Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. This episode is on the religion of no religion. What does that mean? It's not anti-religious. We'll give you a little hint right there off the top. Well, it's like the difference between nothing and no thing. Like nothingness and no thingness. That's a good point. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And we'll find out what Verveke actually means by this term here today. So welcome all. So happy to have you here with us. I'm going to go ahead and start sharing the things around. If you mm-hmm. While he's doing that, I'm going to go care. over the notes. So at the top of last episode, um, we were introduced to a schema, which uh, was higher states of, unconscious, higher states of consciousness um, empowering Gnosis. And then working with counteractive dynamical systems within a wisdom framework. And if we have this, and particularly one that um, can be scientifically articulated, we'll have a reliable response that ameliorates and alleviates uh, the issues of these perennial problems. Um, So, for lack of a better term, enlightenment. So this is what he's trying to deal with, um, what he calls enlightenment. Um, How can, you know, how can this be undermined? Uh, well, it can be undermined by a lack of welcoming a welcoming worldview. So you know, not you know, <laughs> yeah, you, you you don't want a a wisdom tradition that's just doom and gloom and death and everything. You know, it's 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 not going to go anywhere. So it, you know, this worldview that we're developing needs to be a welcoming worldview uh, for everybody to be able to participate in. Um, the ecology, an ecology of psychotechnology uh, for. Addressing perennial problems is necessary, but not necessarily the be-all, end-all. We need more. Uh, we need to uh, inter- uh, we need integration with historical forces, interactions between um, the and look at the interactions between um, the historical forces and perennial problems, and the misattunement thereof. Um, so, a religion that is not a religion. We need something that you know, facilitates what religion facilitates that is not necessarily a religion of dogma and proclamation. Um, So the historical forces have led to a loss of the three orders, um, which create perennial problems. And the three orders are the pneumological, which is our coherence and connectedness, the normative, which is our depth of significance, um, you know, through like uh, self-transcendence, narrative order which is our uh, purpose and direction you know a narrative like a story um 
and the loss of these three orders is gnawing at us, you know, not just individually, but as a whole, you know, as societies, as um, societies interacting with societies and at a special level. Uh, we talked a little bit about Wolf and her book, Meaning of Life and Why It Matters. And what she was saying was meaning in life is about a kind of deep connectedness. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to connect a subject, subjective attraction to objective attractive attractiveness excuse me so uh, subjective attraction is you know like what you know draws you in what works for you um and we want to connect that to something that's objectively like oh yes you know this should work for every you know everything outside of my subjective experience but because of the nomological and normative orders there really is no objective stance that you can take those those two orders are inherently subjective because um, you you know you experience the coherence and connectedness you experience the significance you know the depth of significance um, so that's automatically sub subjective um, and her, she you know she he briefly talked about her talking about um, how, you know, we can bullshit ourselves. And one way is, you know, getting others that agree with us. And we can bullshit ourselves into thinking that something is objective because you have enough people agreeing. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it's uh, whatever the fallacy is. I forget what it's called, but, you know, it is known. Of course, it, of course, it's that way. It's known. Everybody knows it's that way. Um, you know, which seems a little silly on the surface, but, you know, like how how much of our just commonplace understanding of what's true in the world is just because, oh, well, it's not. Many other people say it's true. Yeah. We still want to be a part of something greater than ourselves. Yeah. And that's one of the problems that we run into yeah. perennially. And particularly with, like, uh, proclamation-type faith systems. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying necessarily the faith, faith systems themselves that have proclamation inherent, or I don't want to say inherent. But, yeah, it's us. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know... Yet again, proclamation is just a proclaiming, I believe this. Not, yeah, we're stating contentions you know. of belief. And I, I believe that what Verveig is pointing out and what Christ and the Buddha and people like Socrates and so forth exemplified was a way of being, an orientation or a posture to yeah. life that you take on. And in this case, we're talking about agape, like we were in the last episode, an unconditionality, like unconditional love for all of life, like that a parent has for their baby that we would imagine God having for us. Which is actually an inherently subjective as well, because you are expressing that feeling, that engaging with that as well. And so, like, you know, what are we to think about what Wolf is saying? Um, well, and, do we, and do we really need things to be objectively valuable? That's right, because you know? the solution in, in the agapic way of being is something that is transjective. So it's beyond our yeah, subjective yeah. sense, and it's beyond an objective measurement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so... What we should be looking to, what are what are the set of characteristics that need to exist in order for meaning to be created, and that's the trend. You know, the these yeah, yeah these these characteristics are beyond the subjective or objective. These are conditions that we need, uh, or that need to exist in order to make meaning. Mm -hmm. And this um, puts us in a co-creative dance, if you will, with life. So you're loving yeah. all of life regardless, yeah. and you're loving the co-creative dance that we are making yeah. with it. 
So, um, so we don't need anything to be subjective or objective. We inherently just take on a loving yeah, posture. Yeah, we don't necessarily need that objective attractedness. It's like, mm-hmm. you know... I it, think this is what Jesus was trying to point to. Yeah. You know? So, uh, um, oh, what is RR again? Relevance realization. Relevance there we go. Relevance realization is inherently, inherently self-interested. And by that is realization is constitutive of its own of its own being that being uh relevance realization and it's self-organizing and creative mm-hmm. and the point of relevance realization machinery you could say in our brain the capacity for this is is inherently to gather more relevance yeah. and more realization so it's inherently self-interested like a self-interested yeah. process so we need to be be connected to those conditions, like deeply mm-hmm. connected to those conditions that afford relevance realization itself. Because the more that we realize, the more we find that is relevant, and it turns up our relevance realization capacity. And so it's this constant reciprocal building and building and building with our environments. Yeah. So uh, one must also care about these conditions, um, and these conditions are universal, um, as in like... Um, Everywhere there are these, you know, everywhere in every culture there are condi- these same conditions that make meaning making possible. Mm-hmm. They may be expressed a little bit differently, particularly particularly in the narrative end of things. You know, the stories are different, but yeah. what they're pointing to is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, when we care, we are engaging in agape, loving the process of making meaning making and making persons. Mm. Um, you know, truly being a person, making persons. And if it's only just making a person out of yourself, that's still enough, right? Um, agape is the cure to Wolf's um, insight and argument. Mm-hmm. Like we don't, we don't need objective. It is. We don't. We don't necessarily need that in order to grow. That's in right. In order to understand, it is the solution to the uh, subjective objective dilemma. We don't need for things to be objectively attractive for us in order to relate with them and co-create with yeah. reality. So they talked about the need of the, cult- love. the cultivation of agape. So by this, it means the deepest appreciation and caring that is constitutive to the realization that makes the agent arena relationship possible. So it, this caring is a necessity for the realization of what makes meaning making or no not meaning making excuse me it makes the agent arena relationship possible mm-hmm. okay. and what gives us meaning in life and and helps us be meaning makers in the world so uh, on historical forces so um we can use for um cognitive psychology um and the understation understanding of the theoretical machinery um to address the historical factors there's uh, a man, Francisco Varela, uh, not mm. Ferella, but Ferella, um, in the Deep Connectedness Hypothesis. Um, he had a book, uh, I believe it's his, my notes are a little bad, so forgive me if I'm wrong. The Psychology of Awakening. I believe that's what, yeah, Awakening. That sounds right. So what are the insights of uh, third-gen 4E psychology and... Uh, and unpack um, and unpacking the four E's and how does how do the four E's of third gen cogsci uh, address the three orders? 
Um, and Verveke was saying that Varelli um, was finding himself saying things that resonated with, uh, you know, the philosophy of Dharma and Eastern like Buddhism mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, and the three orders that we're referring to are the nomological, the normative, and the narrative. And the narrative. Yes, and uh, Varela will actually use his own, um, his own ease, if you will. So we have um, embeddedment. So the quote here, um, which is Varela, uh, mind is not programmed software or rule-bound uh, rule representation of symbols. Instead, the mind arises immediate um, coping with the world. Um, arises from yeah yes yeah, yes yeah, from, the world, yeah. from there uh, from the media from coping. or through one of those two yeah um, so dealing with the problems at hand in the relationship to the world at large this is what we got you know we're doing um, and that is you know fittedness um, within the agent arena relationship is dealing with these problems directly at hand mm-hmm. um. So the other three E's of Cogsci, so the first one is embeddedment, the second one is, is, excuse me, first one's embodiment, the second one's embeddedment, third is inactive, and fourth is extended. So if we're talking about embodiment, your cognition is grounded in your relevance realization, which is grounded in a bioeconomy, and there are constraints within the bioeconomy how your brain realizes relevance and your cognition and it's embodied within the body of biochemistry you know yes. it first starts with the primary needs of this machine holding us around that's or, right you know, allowing us to move around we constrain so our cognition constrains information coming in constantly so that we can better fit ourselves yeah so to the environment cognition is embedded in biology um continual niche construction or Continually constructing and this is getting into the some of the new realizations mm-hmm. in the philosophy of biology. Yeah, yeah. So um, by continual niche construction, it, you can look at it like this: like the the, um, the organism shapes the environment, which then shapes the organism. And we, we do this in culture, but we do it with massive results. That's right, and know? and not just in long term evolution and in culture are we constantly doing this process of gaining increased fittedness? We're doing this individually within ourselves all the time through our yes. relevance realization so that capacity. Is, yeah, that is our In basically what our consciousness is doing at any given time, trying time. to carve out a niche and then respond to how the environment responds to it. It's carving mm-hmm. out of the niche and then carves its own niche yep. within the body. Yep. So the mind and the body and the world are in a deep continuity with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, every moment, you know, every time I shift to get comfortable, my body is doing relevance realization. Oh, this is a little bit better posture. This yeah. feels more comfortable. It's constantly reframing and reseeing and reacclimating itself to reality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of, uh, uh, now it looks like vanilla. <laughs> ice, vanilla. Ice, baby. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, one of his ease are, is emer- uh, emergence. Uh, the mind emerges out of the embodied, embeddedive, embedded brain to a living environment through complexification. Um, so our environment and then complexification helps us realize what is relevant more 
Um, so mm -hmm. I guess complexification is inherent in relevance or environment complexification, excuse me, is inherent in relevance realization. Mm. Um, so there's a reintroduction to a vertical axis that is in a two-world vertical axis at this point. Um, biology and evolution are self-organizing and self-making and self-identifying um, and self-optimizing. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I am a self-optimizing thing seeking the conditions to project and promote my agency. Mm -hmm. That's the self-identifying part of this this um, biology. That's what our relevance realization is doing for us. It's helping us to self-optimize, yeah. and then we be and then it, it becomes reflective mm -hmm. upon itself too. Mm -hmm. Not too reflective. And that's what we mean by relevance realization mm -hmm. being inherently interested in itself because it's just further driving up the power of that relevance realization yeah. mach machinery that we have uh, in our cognition. So I have here. I have Varela's uh, four E's. Embodiment, emergence, and emotion. So now we're talking about the emotion. Um, and the idea that there's a, a divide between emotion and reason. But if you lack emotion, uh, you are incapacitated um, as a cognitive agent because emotion pre prevents the combinatorial explosion of not knowing what is most um, relevant at the time. You mm -hmm. know, like the whole story of a fire, you know, a fire in your house. That's yeah, right. You know, That's right. Your birth certificate isn't that relative most yeah. of the time, but if there's a fire in your house, you might want to get it. There's always so much information around us that we could be taking in, just trillions and trillions of bytes yeah. of information at all times that it that's where the term combinatorial yeah. explosion comes from. The combination of different things that you could do in any given situation is so much that it's just explosive and it's beyond our capacity. So our cognition narrows and Use, utilizes emotion to be able to recognize yeah, what's important in this moment. It makes obvious the agent in yeah. arena relationship and what's involved right. with So that. in the case of a fire, how, and, you know, neuroscientists and like psychologists, everyone involved in all the different fields of COG-SCI have been trying to figure out for so long, how does our brain realize what's relevant? What is yeah. this relevance realization machinery? Yeah. How does it do it? Because how does it chain together something like birth certificate, pets, kids, computer like how how are these things actually related well if you care about your home and you care about your pets and your children and you know your computer is probably important mm. or your phone or whatever it is and maybe important documents all these things are going to rise up in the same grouping in your mind at once yeah. like oh i got to get all these things and that's how they're connected together by our emotion yep so we, so need, need we need something. Well, we need something analogous to emotion, it, it, like in programming AI. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. And, and also understanding how it works with us as yeah. well, because you know sometimes emotion isn't you know emotion isn't the best thing, but like it's like emotion is one of those things that you can't really measure. Mm -hmm. It's like happy. Well, how happy? What kind of happy? Yeah, it's all subjective. Yeah, yeah. We have it, hormones. It, we're too, growing so, biological beings yeah, that know we're going to so, die one day. So how do you program that Program yeah. that into a computer? And is that even a good idea for us to try? Who knows? That's up for debate. So, But that's definitely the next, what we what would you call it, the next vista or horizon for AI to be exploring. Is yeah. We figured out how to get the AI to be able to be attentive and focus and narrow in its attention to, to some degree. But we don't know how to make it recognize what is actually relevant without it having emotions yeah. like we do. So reli religio has in it caring. Experience of higher states of consciousness. 
that help us achieve and realize self-transcendence. Yeah. So, yeah, religio has caring and coping, and that is at the core of our cognitive agency. So this, the, you know, you could say religio is a coordinated attachments between individuals to make persons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we get on to Varela's fourth E, which is excellence. That's right. Um, and so we talked about positive psychology, you know, like which, you know, studies happiness and meaning of life and wisdom, but also it's a way of doing psychology that see how things build up and excel beyond the norm mm-hmm. opposed to standard psychology, which is looking at how the mind breaks down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it'd be wise to study those that are beyond the norm, that which are, are wise. Those that excel, you know, that's right. Which are wise people. And we, we need the wisdom to know how to best use this science that we're developing as well. So you got to you got to build a wisdom framework around the science, this science as yes. you're building the science. Yeah, because as well. with our current tech, we have the power of quote unquote gods without the wisdom of and, gods. And so hopefully we can with this rescue two of the three uh, orders, which. The ones we're rescuing would be uh, normative and uh, nomological, nomological because yeah. it's not necessarily the narrative that we're res- rescuing because n- narrative isn't necessarily the same everywhere else, even though it's pointing to the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so we, with the science and what we're looking at, we can get two. We can get two. And Yeah, we'll have to see what he tells us about yeah. narrative as we go on. Yeah, here. yeah, I think he's saving it. He, he um, made some great points in the last episode about it. Uh, so there's uh, a woman, last name, Good Enough, was That's talking right. about a transcendence. So there's this idea of, the, I guess the standard idea of transcendence would be a transcendence above. Mm-hmm. But really what she was talking about was transcendence into the sacred depths of nature. Mm. Um, you know, We should be doing which, both. Yeah, which will change the fundamental grammar of what we think of as transcendence. Mm-hmm. I like um, that. So when it comes because to... Because creation is all around us and mm-hmm. everything around us, not just above, but it's in all of creation. So on, on the, the narrative order, the narrative order points to a cosmic telos, which uh, telos is, is not open-ended. It's not an open-ended thing. It's, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And we need so, an open-ended telos. Yeah, and that's the thing. So we need we need, and this is actually getting into the narrative a little yeah, bit now, right? Yeah, yeah. This is in the narrative. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, the problem. Uh, we can't really find. That we need of. to be able to create open-ended stories and open-ended myths. Because yeah, transcendence is open-ended. That's right. There, the well, let's say it this way: the absolute, the divine. Mm-hmm. So, the Alpha, the Omega, is this endless, infinite thing that can never be totally comprehended. God is beyond all knowing and all of time. Nor is the process of transcendence a thing that you can get to. That's right. Like He's, the there's end, no you know, Captain Enlightenment. Of it. Yeah. yeah, there's yeah. no Captain Enlightenment. There's infinite room yeah. that creation has given us through which to grow into. So perhaps we should think of um, the narrative order as... Gnosis, an open-ended optimization. There you go. I like that. So the stories are not in independent existing things. They may be different from culture to culture, but they're all... And they're deep, s- deep teaching tools. They're not just yeah. something that we're supposed to take literally and then argue over the literalism of them. That's the trap that yeah. religion got yeah. into when it was trying to challenge science, scientific materialism as 
the scientific revolution began and it started to say, oh, the world is actually this old, not what it says in your book. And then religious leaders were like, well, actually, we're going to start taking everything literally now and say this is what it is. So religion became proclamations of belief for us rather than a way of being. Mm -hmm. And that should be, I believe, the top focus, the highest focus is embodying that well, orientation how, how, how to do life. I, how, do I, how do we optimize ourselves to the best way of being? Mm-hmm. And particularly, in, we need the, our myths to this be is my, my opinion, particularly in a way that doesn't disregard base human natures as mm-hmm. well, you know, because I think that was the problem with, you know, the, you know, the, those who came out of the enlightenment with the idea that if we just did the right things, we could free humans of mm. their nature. Mm. And that left to, well, that led to a lot of like really Trying nasty experiments on humans into... on massive levels. Um, so genocide, hundreds of millions of deaths in the 20th century, thinking some people are better than other eugenics, like a bunch of stuff. Um, so this last Mm -hmm. little bit I have Mm -hmm. here, um, is it possible to move to a post narrative and by post narrative, he means concerned with the depths. So post narrative concerned with the depths of things. Let's let these stories continually Uh, grow as we way of being. So is it possible to move to a post narrative way of being? Mm. We need to go beyond narrative. And he's supposing that, higher states of consciousness and this feeling of deep at oneness um, might be the way to go for this for the, uh, instead of a set narrative and ongoing mm-hmm. narrative. And there's nothing wrong with the narratives. Yeah. We're just not saying this. We're just saying that the story is ongoing yeah. and that it's a dance right now that we get to take part yeah. in, that we are continually writing. Yeah, it, precisely. The story, the stories are ongoing, even if yeah. there's a beginning, a middle, and the end, because you you know you can read the same story many times and get different but insights. They, they apply to us in different yeah. ages of history. We're continually returning to challenge we've we've experienced yeah. previously in in human history, so, and they're in different contexts. So there's always going to be new information and wisdom to gain. Yeah, and so he's um, the last little bit here is like a flow of constant exaptation from fluency into insight into flow into a mystical experience into a transformative in spirits into a higher state of consciousness ongoing and that's like the 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 flow chart of the solution to the narrative order issue Mm. we have Mm -hmm. and you know because like well this this whole episode is that might be the solution to all three well, that is two. the solution to all three. Yeah, mm-hmm. you definitely. But that's the ongoing story. The ongoing story is, and then the uh, ongoing when optimization. When we come out of the higher stage of consciousness, we have a greater fluency, which gives us greater insight and greater mm-hmm. flow. Um, yeah, and that's reinforcing yes. the other because you know these three orders are all self-enforcing as well. They they're not they don't exist by themselves. They mm-hmm. reflect and that's right. So we have to get these stories back in conversation. Mm-hmm with our communities, with ourselves, and with each yeah. other. Yeah, so yeah. that was last week's episode. It was such a good episode. It was a lot, too. You, and you brought up the two-world mythology at, at one point. So Yeah, so we have, is, a, we have a vertical axis of understanding mm-hmm. um, now with... Uh, the the two-world mythology is the idea that we're down here, and then the divine, and heaven is all up there. Yeah, but instead, we can we have that access but, access, but now it's us moving and transcending through the axis and not in a way of leaving this world and moving on to the next, but continuously 
adjusting and optimizing our fittedness mm -hmm. into this world as we come to a greater understanding of as it. we even transcend yes. yes yeah yeah so it's it's just one great thing we're not separating anything in our yeah, yeah new configuration yeah, yeah. and our new understanding of reality because because that breaking apart and separating has caused us a lot of turmoil there's a lot of competing over which version is right but yeah. if it's an ongoing mythology that we're all yeah. writing and realizing together, that changes the orientation well, entirely. I, I was talking uh, to a buddy of mine yesterday or something like that. You know, we're just talking about religion and other things like that. And, you know, I said something and it came to mind. But the idea of heaven as a, you know, the a stopping point, end point scares me just as much as the idea of hell, mm. frankly. Because um, the idea of, oh, you just get to this place and you... And always some people the, get there. And, and it, you know, yeah. all you get to do is just watch people that are alive and see who comes up next. And it's just mm -hmm. like, man. The idea that, of burning that, an everlasting hell never seemed fair for someone that chose the wrong religion or made some mistakes in but their I, life. I find bo both, I don't, I find I both, just don't see, I find both just as terrifying. Yeah. I, and I just don't see like a merciful God being somebody that would well, punish people eternally. And I think that the idea of eternal, that eternal punishment in, the Bible is just trying to say a really long time, or it's going to feel like a really long time because you're out of space and time. Well, there's at this point. There, there's some interpretations of what hell is. So we is. could relive our mistakes. Most of what we think of as hell in the modern era is because of Dante's Inferno. Right, that too. Um, right, but right. there's other interpretations and there's the two of hell that I can even. agree with, which is the willful separation from the source. Absolutely, from God. absolutely. But that I don't think will it will last forever because if you cut off, look, willfully cut it all off. Well, how are you going to get back to it? You've willfully cut yourself off. But you can't because it's all one thing. You yeah, know? but you can you know, go into a different state of if you see existence that, that isn't a continuation. It's just something that rots down and gets reused into something else, and that's hell. There, I would think there's always well, a way back. The, I don't think a, a, what's the, worst the ultimate mercy, the ultimate well, embodiment of mercy. You can't wouldn't. rescue something that doesn't want to be rescued. Yeah, but you once you die, you're not a person anymore. You're not a human well, body anymore. You're 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 a soul, which is we a know, fragment. We know neither whether we are or we're you're, not. You're a soul, which is a fragment of. And the I'm whole. not saying hell comes only when you're dead. Yeah, well, of course, I agree with you there. I think that it's what we can make of our own lives, you know, in this planet, you know. But uh, what's the worst punishment you can give to a kid? But anyways, I, yeah. I don't, and I disagree with that kind of literalistic take from the Bible of ever. I don't believe that's what they're trying to convey there. I think that what is being conveyed is that it could feel very well like an eternity but you, of course the infinite merciful love of creation will always invite you back home once you've learned what you need to learn your your soul is literally just a fragment of the whole and it, it's never totally separated it can't be lucifer it's, it's always been the lucifer willingly separated himself from god yeah, and that's that again is like a a, a teaching tool for well, us. Well, and what, I think what, it could be an the, aspect the of reality the as greatest, well. But. The greatest love you can have for your child is to sacrifice them to their own choices. Sure, unfortunately, you know. Sure, as, as, but eternity because I do I do eternity is well. the ultimate level of overkill, which I think is it's 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 also childish to well, think I, that you know I could quit. It's, it's a teaching tool that's going to tell people mm -hmm. it's so so bad to do this. That you absolutely do not but, want to, so you give them the connotation of eternal suffering, but really eternal burning of your skin off. No, that's Dante's Inferno. Like yet okay. again, it's 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 mixing mixing a bad. I think Dante's Inferno is absolute garbage as far as the understanding of. And the so, nature somebody of correct me then, but there's suffering. scripture in the Bible that points to eternal burning and suffering. Um, and it depends on who's your translation. 
you know, which translation, you know, as I'm going through, I'm realizing the translations we'll, we'll are to totally study freaking different. You but know, let's, like, let's jump to yeah. another subject before we jump into the episode real fast, because there's something that you said also uh, when we were referring to Buddha, and I remembered a quote from Buddha, compassion leads to wisdom, not wisdom to compassion. And we could often think that it would be the other way around. It would be that wisdom leads us to compassion. But no, it's actually compassionate understanding is what widens our awareness, widens our consideration. When we're willing to put ourselves in other shoes and see from other points of view, we're literally widening our total awareness. So that is how compassion, understanding, unconditionality, willing to see everything without an immediate judgment can lead us to more further understanding and thus wisdom. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to be overly smart to be compassionate. No, you, you don't. don't have to be overly capable to have compassion. You don't have to be, you know, some guy who sits up on a hill and prays under a, you know, or meditates under a uh, waterfall for 30 years to be compassionate. You yeah. Know? yeah. It's, it's that little simple thing that resides in all of us that we can nurture, mm-hmm. that we can then gain wisdom. And you're through. right that we definitely don't have to be the the Buddhist monks studying for 30 years in the cave, or we don't also have to be super intelligent to become wise. It doesn't matter what your intellect level is. Anybody can become wise. And I believe that wisdom is more important than intelligence because intelligence without the wisdom to wield it is incredibly dangerous. And intelligence without compassion, well, we've got a lot of examples of that. Yeah, we do. You know, a lot of scientists. Oh, yeah, interesting little fact. Did you know... uh, uh, surgeons tend to uh, more uh, the the field of surgery has more uh, psychopaths than any any other field. Whoa, yeah, because well, you know, you give people a ch- you know a chance to cut other people open, it kind of draws a certain type, and, and not disturb them like they're fine with it. Yeah, yeah, and enjoy it, which, and, and enjoy you know, it. Um, I, I I do enjoy you know breaking down animal carcasses into their constituent parts to be eaten, but you know I draw my line at like human. Like, if I have to, I will. Like, you know, if it's like if your leg's got to go because, like, you got acid on it or something because, like, the alien came after you and got acid blood on you. Yeah, uh, I'd chop off your leg real quick. Okay. But you wouldn't I eat would, it, though. No. no it's already <laughs> ruined by the acid. I don't know. I'm on I the fence. I thought fe- that's where you I'm going. on the fence about cannibalism. If, it, if it's bad enough and you're already dead, maybe. But, you know, you ain't got no fat on you, so I don't want none of that. If I, if I die in a Fair. Plane, if I die, or if I get in a plane crash over like Alaska or something, I'm ho- I hope I got some big old fatties on my plane. I'll make a skin <laughs> suit out of you. <laughs> oh God! Uh, the dark thoughts. Uh, yeah. uh, the, well, the the humorous, uh, you know, humor's uh, humor is a way we deal with horror, and I see a lot of horror mm. in the world. And oh, I yeah, won't say it drives my dark humor, it's, but it definitely complements one of the most like popular kinds of entertainment people are proud to be into like the most freakish just shock style horror movies i like a good psychological thriller i don't like the gore stuff that but stuff's just the excess of gore like yeah. house no. of a thousand corpses stuff is like when i saw that movie the first time i was like i can't believe people get so turned on by this and and i was watching it also disturbed like this can't be good for society this yeah. cannot be good for us to it's celebrate it's, this it's basically yeah. legalized snuff films where people don't actually die, but it's no. as close to a snuff film as you can get. And it's also a lot of eye for an eye stuff. This guy did something bad that was 
very cruel and well, you notice torturous the, and insane. So I'm going to do something cruel and torturous and insane to get him back. But if you're thinking that if you're thinking that cruel and torturous and insane is wrong in the first place, then why are you going to reciprocate oh, it? Oh, because it just, feels good, you know. To uh, you yeah, know, we're so dumb. You poked out my eye, so I'm going to poke out your eye and your family's eyes, and then I'm going to sew them together into a big body. Brilliant. Yeah, that's going to make the world better. Next movie is going to be Human Spider for the little for the little ones and the people that come after us. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not down with like the super gore stuff. I like Silence of the Lambs and you know that that end of thing Mm -hmm. and like Alfred Hitchcock and Mm -hmm. stuff that gets you like genuinely psychologically scary stuff. Still, because your imagination is way scarier than seeing guts spilled out. I just think that's gross. It's funny because when I was a kid, I was like, I thought that guts and bombs, you know, going off and all that was like, I was so excited by violence. And I guess that makes sense when you're an adolescent. You know, it's getting your it's priming you to be ready to be hunt yeah. or to be a hunter and that's definitely deep in our dna so i, I can get that but uh you know, i certainly grew out of it it's kind of funny how that happens and you hear the stories of the old warriors that are done fighting but they're happy to guide the younger warriors all right fam let's jump on this is going to be episode 39 of john verveke's awakening from the meaning crisis we're getting into a deep one now this is the religion of no religion. Here we go. Hope you're all ready for this. Bing. Welcome back to Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. So last time I was uh, making a proposal to you of uh, how we could address uh, the perennial problems, and I gave you um, a systematic uh, set of things to that could be cultivated in, in an integrated fashion for addressing uh, perennial problems, and then we saw how that is um, interacts with our, our attempts to uh, ameliorate and alleviate the perennial problems, interact with the historical forces in that we get the fundamental undermining of meaning in life and uh, that problem set by Wolf. And then I proposed to you that there was a response to that in terms of uh, the notion of agape. And then I moved into uh, the direct uh, addressing of the historical forces, uh, looking about uh, for recovery of something like what the three orders did for us. (coughs) And then I proposed to you that if we took a look at uh, 4E cognitive science, third generation cog sci, and in particular some of the insights afforded from that by, uh, 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 sorry, insights afforded uh, by uh, 4E cognitive science, third generation cog sci, uh, that were pointed out by Varela in his article. Uh, we can see a ways in which we can get a worldview that strongly situates our meaning-making processes within it, um, legitimates it. We talked about um, how we can recover something like the nomological order um, and the normative order and how perhaps we can move to something post-narrative, an open-ended optimization um, that is seeking for a depth of realization rather than a historical combination and I uh, propose to you uh, bringing with it the the notion uh, 
that uh, good enough bringing with that whole project of uh, responding to the historical forces and, and trying to bring with it a new notion uh, from uh, Goodenough's work on transcendence uh, into rather than transcendence above or beyond and how that is resonant and consonant with uh, the picture that we've been working on together. A couple things remain that are central. Uh, one, of course, is to give an account, a cognitive scientific account of wisdom because of the wisdom framing that is needed for both the cultivation of uh, the responses to the meaning crisis and the um, use of, interpretation of, uh, grasping the significance of the cognitive scientific framework. So we need to uh, develop an account of wisdom together. And I also said we need to talk about this notion of getting something that's a religion that's not a religion and what might that look like. So I want to address the second point first because I have less to say about it, not because it's not important. Um, I have less to say about it because it's very tentative and um, I, wa I want to try and talk about it in ultimately a suggestive fashion. Um, I'm not trying to found a movement or anything ridiculous or pretentious like that. There are many people, though, who are uh, writing books about this idea. I recommend to you John Carse's book, uh, The Religious Case Against Belief, uh, which I've already recommended. Uh, there's Unger's book on uh, future religion. Uh, there's uh, books like uh, Religion for Atheists, in which people are, I think, and I mean this in a, a serious sense, but they're trying to play with what does, what would thi this might look like, a religion that's not a religion, and how can it help us to address it. Even people like Richard Dawkins are trying to propose, you know, that we should get, uh, cultivate an ability, a ultimately poetic ability to engender wonder and awe that is consonant with the scientific uh, worldview. So a lot of people are, uh, trying to get some conceptual vocabulary and theoretical grammar going for this. I, so I do not see myself as offering anything definitive or authoritative, but on the basis of what we have done together, I'd like to try and offer some suggestions of what this would look like. So remember, why are we setting this problem? Well, we, we for many of us, Right, and the, 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 the group that I self-identify as the nuns, having no religion, nevertheless, a uh, large majority of those people are still spiritually hungry in important ways. Uh, returning to organized religion is not uh, a viable option, and part of that has to do with a lot of the history that we've traced out. And uh, pursuing pseudo-religious political ideologies and utopic visions is also not viable uh, precisely because of the trauma of uh, the 20th century and parts of the 21st century and the clash of 
uh, the pseudo-religious ideologies and the way they drenched the world with blood and torture and horror. And so I propose to you that, nevertheless, we need to do something like what religion used to do. We need a, we need a comprehensive set of psychotechnologies that are set within communities of practices that allow for the comprehensive transformations of consciousness, cognition, character, and culture in a way that is analogous uh, to religion. That is what we're looking for, something that can do all of that. Uh, because that is what we need, that kind of transformation is needed today to address what Thomas uh, uh, Bjorkman calls the meta-crisis of all the various crises that we are facing and that are interacting with each other um, in what looks to be an increasingly accelerating fashion and having an increasingly deleterious effect on us individually and collectively. So that is part of the problem. And what would it look like, the religion that is not a religion. Again, as I said, there are many people who are taking a stab at this or trying to um, get a grip on this. And so I am just seeing myself as contributing to, hopefully, hopefully to that, help, hopefully, helpfully to that dialogue. So part of it, I think, is, and this is, of course, what I tried to do, is to acknowledge the centrality of religio and that there is um, important, there's an important role for indispensable mythos in the activation, accentuation, acceleration, appreciation of uh, religio. And so I think there, uh, that is something that should be um, acknowledged um, as what we would be looking for. <coughs> and, and this brings out an important contrast I want to discuss, so I'm not equal. Religion, religio versus credo. Let's talk about this a little bit and try and get clearer about it, because we have this idea of an open-ended mythos analogous to the transgressive mythology of of the Gnostics. So credo, of course, means I believe. And it's, it's the word behind things like the, the, the Nicene Creed or the Apostolic Creed. Uh, a notion of credo is an, a, a notion of sort of a paradigmatic set of propositions that, uh, who, that state uh, what the, 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 the essence of a religion is uh, in terms of the truth content uh, that is supposed to be believed. And so what has happened to some degree um, in various ways, it, and I've tried to show you this, is as this, of course, is linked to propositional knowing, and as propositional knowing has come into ascendance, right, and as the having mode has come into Ascendance, the having of propositions uh, that are asserted, right? And of course, willful assertion. We've seen as all of this has come into ascension, 
right? This has tended to become dominant. Uh, so as I've mentioned, we often think about religions uh, or, or speak of them as if uh, they are belief systems, systems of beliefs, or, right? And so you have propositional knowing, uh, you have the having of those propositions, and the, the way you have them is ultimately to assert them in, in, in some fashion. Uh, usually in a willful fashion, where I mean that very broadly in the way that we've discussed here, where it is not uh, something that is ultimately derived from reason, but it is something that is being asserted, nevertheless. Now, I think there's an important role for um, credo, and so I want to make a distinction between credo and this credal, uh, right, assertion, uh, credal dominance, okay? So let's talk, talk about this set of things as credal dominance. Right. But let's talk about perhaps a, a way of understanding the functionality of this. Okay. Now, first of all, I'm, of course, aware of the postmodern critique, um, and I will have a final, towards the final end of the series, I'll, I'll come back and talk about um, postmodernism. But I'm aware of the postmodern critique and the, the, that a lot of this is, and that makes sense given creedal domina dominance, that this is uh, meshed with uh, power, uh, with dominance, with control, um, with uh, creed creating sort of purity codes where we have uh, boundaries of identity of the us and the other. All of that, I think, um, I, 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 I think is a legitimate form of argument and something um, I take seriously. But I would put that under creedal dominance and I would want to try and take out of uh, what remains, what, what, what function can we see for people doing this and how might we understand it. Well, first of all, like I said, uh, we, can, we can think of people having paradigmatic statements and pictures that this might be a function of indispensability to them, right? So they can understand it, right? As we can understand it as indispensable mythos. Again, it's highly plausible um, that there is a mythos for you or for groups of people that uh, is indispensable given the contextual sensitivity, the dynamic coupling of religio, that, that a there's a sets of symbols and stories uh, and celebrations and shows and souvenirs and all the things uh, associated with mythos right, that are indispensable uh, for getting the kind of um, sacredness out of religio that people want and need in response to, for example, the perennial problems. So th again, uh, this of course is part of the philosophical reason, not just there's also an independent moral reason, but this is part of my philosophical reason why I try to be deeply respectful um, to religious creeds, uh, precisely because even though I think all of these criticisms or all the criticisms associated with this, criticisms that I've added to in this series, I think they're all legitimate. I think this is also a very legitimate thing. Now, of course, the problem is, is to confuse uh, indispensability with metaphysical necessity. 
and to confuse need with authority, and we've talked about all of that. What I think we can think w uh, 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 this is not only an indispensability that's idiosyncratic to people or the group, we can also talk about an indispensable functionality that might be more universal in nature. And this has to do with a basic idea from all of information processing, uh, from what's called signal detection theory. So signal detection theory is a, a theory that basically argues that uh, we're, we're always facing uh, perennial problems when, uh, and, and I, mean, I mean that to allude to the perennial problems that I've talked about here. Uh, we're we're, whenever we're doing information processing, there's aspects in which the information is, there's, there's, and this is no contradiction, there's simultaneously too much information but there's often in inadequate information, like you're not seeing all of my body right now, right? Um, so the information is simultaneously overwhelming and partial. Uh, the information is often ambiguous. It, it, it's, it's unclear if that information I is uh, the information you need or um, you're, you're being misled in some way by information that's similar but not in the relevant way to the information you're looking for. So all of these things point to uh, uh, an, important uh, an important general conclusion. Now, I'm going to have to use two terms here. I'm going to use the word signal, and this means information I want. Information I want or need. And then noise. Noise does not mean audible distortion. Audible distortion is one kind of it. What this means is this means information I do not want. Right? It's in some way distracting, right? It's in some way misleading, etc. So here's the idea. Here's the population of events that constitute signal that you're looking for. And the idea is there's always a significant overlap with noise. Again, where noise doesn't mean audible distortion, it means any information that you don't want, that it can be confused with, look at confused with, can be confused with signal. So if you, let's take a prototypical example, right? A prototypical example is this, you're a gazelle um, and you hear a noise in the bush. Now that could be important signal, it could, it could be information that you want because it's information telling you that a leopard is near. Or the noise in the bush could be noise in this technical sense. It could just be the rustling of the leaves caused by the wind. And that is, and this is the important term here, that's irrelevant to you. That's irrelevant to you. That might be signal for somebody else or something else, but for you as the gazelle, it's irrelevant. See, being signal and noise, of course, is a matter of relevance realization. So you're sort of caught here, right? Because if you're the gazelle, what you're experiencing is this, this zone right here, right? This zone of overlap between the signal and the noise. You don't know what it is. Now, what you can say is, well, what I'll do is I'll get more information. And there's a sense in which that helps. 
but you have to also understand that there's a diminishing return here. Because any new information that I try to get to resolve this will also suffer from this problem. Right? And this, of course, goes again towards you can't ultimately get certainty, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Also, the more I regress and try to get signal about my signal about my signal about my signal, the more time I'm taking, and often time is an important constraint. So first of all, you can't ever escape this problem. And as you uh, try to reduce it, you have to put in a lot of time and effort that can ultimately be too costly for you. So the idea is there's a sense in which every act, even an act of perception, is to some degree risky. It's a gamble. And this is part, again, uh, and we talked about this. Uh, Tim Lillicrap, Blake Richards, and I in the paper on relevance realization. Uh, this, is, this is part, again, uh, of the issue of you know, trading off between various uh, uh, contingencies. What's the trade-off here? Well, the, tra the trade-off is I have, to, I have to what's called do, I have to set the criterion. So the criterion is basically what I do is I, I put a dividing line, a decision line, remember, Decide ultimately means to cut. And I'm going to include everything right, to the left as signal and exclude everything to the right. Now, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, the, the problem with that is, uh, uh, of course, I'm now opening myself up to different kinds of errors. Okay, so. One of the things I can do here is I c if, if I set my criterion too high, for example, I will include a lot, I will treat a lot of noise as signal. Okay. If I set my criterion way down here, I, I, I don't want to ever be wrong. I'm going to set my criterion really low, right? Like here. Right, I'm going to set my, that way I'll never, the problem is if I set my criterion so I exclude all possible noise, I'm going to miss a lot of valuable signal. Okay. The other issue that comes up, so where do you set the criterion? Well, I mean, there isn't an algorithm for that. Because part of the problem is those different kinds of errors are differentially relevant to you depending on the context. Let's go back to the gazelle. You have two gazelles. You have Bill the happy gazelle. And what Bill wants to do is basically, right, wants to avoid leopards. Right? So Bill says, well, I'm going to set my criterion very high because that way most of the time, I'm going to treat the noise as a leopard in the bush. And that way, my chances of missing a leopard are very small. Now, the problem with Bill is he's kind of, he, you know, he, he runs away a lot. lot. There's every wind, and he runs away, and all the other gazelles laugh at Bill. Look at Bill. He's running around again. And if Bill does this too much, of course, it's exhausting, right? Now, in contrast uh, to Bill the gazelle, there is, you know, let's call it Tom 
And Tom is the, you know, the really epistemically oriented gazelle. Tom will only act on the basis of what Tom truly believes. And so Tom is going to be very skeptical and set their criterion very low. And Tom says, I'm only going to believe what I'm really confident in and certain of, right? And that way, you know, this is what's going to happen. So what, what happens for Tom is all the instances where the wind is blowing and Bill runs away, Tom laughs at Bill. Aha, aha, silly Bill. The problem is Tom is missing signal by setting his criterion so low. And one of these times, there's a noise in the bush, Bill runs, Tom begins to laugh, and as he's mid-laugh, there is a leopard on his back sinking its jaws in a death grip on his neck. Because, you see, in this, in this context, not in all contexts, not in all contexts, but in this context, missing signal is much worse than mistaking noise for signal. See, there's two kinds of errors. I can miss signal. I can mistake noise for signal. When I do this, right, that's Bill. Everybody laughs at me. That's a cost, and I'm using a lot of energy. But if I miss, right, if I miss the leopard, I'm dead. And that's much, much worse. So that's why most gazelles are like Bill rather than like Tom. They set the criterion way over here. They're willing to make a lot of mistakes so that they do not make very many misses. Now, there's other situations where you, right, where it'll be reversed, where a mistake is much more costly to you than a miss. And so what you need, right, what you need is you need to be flexibly setting your criterion in a way that is deeply contextually sensitive, deeply situationally aware. This is, again, why perspectival knowing is so crucial. Perspectival knowing is your situational awareness, and your situational awareness should be right your primary guide to what is the context and how do I set the criterion in this context. In fact, there's a uh, neuroscientist, cognitive scientist, Lau, who argues that one of the functions of consciousness is exactly to set the criterion for, uh, uh, for perception. So what you're paying attention to, uh, right, is how you're situationally aware, and so how you're paying attention, how you're situationally aware, how you're setting the, uh, the criterion is actually the job of consciousness. Now, as, as you may realize, and uh, myself and Richard Wu and Anderson Todd argued, this again is another argument that the, one of the main functions of consciousness is to do relevance realization within perspectival knowing. Yet another converging argument. Now, the point about this is two things, and both of them have to be remembered. What does this have to do with credo? Well, I would argue that what credo is, is criti credo 
is setting the criterion on religio. What it's trying to do is determine what, what behaviors, what things are putting me really into contact with religio, and then what is malfunctional, what is mad, etc. Now, the issue is we have to set the criterion. That's inescapable. And one way to do this is to do it in an absolutist way. One way to do this is to say there is a final way, a final place, an absolute place to set the criterion. I can think, I think you can see from the argument given here why that is a perilous thing to do. You can see again why the open-endedness of relevance realization undermines these, the attempt to absolutely set the criterion. So you have to set the criterion, but it is dangerous to set the criterion in an absolute fashion. So if we can acknowledge this, we can acknowledge that we will set the criterion with our mythos, but, and that's one half of credo, but we should not ever try to set the criterion in an absolute or final manner, which is what happens in creedal dominance, because that is ultimately to misunderstand uh, the functionality of setting the criterion. The point is not to set the criterion conclusively, the point is to continually reset the criterion optimally. Again, open-ended relevance realization uh, rather than a final solution. So a way of thinking about that is the religion of not, that's not a religion would always, always have credo in the service of religio. Now, I, I'm, I'm sure that there are many religious people that say, well, that is, that is what we do in practice. And, you know, we have our creeds, but they're constantly being historically interpreted, um, right? Uh, and, and I think that's sort of right in practice, uh, but there's often been a lot of conflict between uh, de facto and de jure um, in the history of uh, the religious discussions around orthodoxy and creed, etc. And I point to you again to the work of Arthur Vers Lewis and his work um, uh, on um, the way in which the, the, the West's history of pursuing and persecuting heretics, people who right, do not set the criterion as we do, has actually helped to foreshadow and train the West uh, for totalitarian regimes and um, totalitarian ideologies. So uh, I, I point you again to uh, his historical argument uh, for how that came about. So for thou that reason, we should always be thinking of making credo clearly and comprehensively always in the service of religio. That would be helped, as you can, I think, see, by being linked to a notion of sacredness as being grounded in an inexhaustible, open-ended optimi optimization rather than in some absolute uh, state of perfection.
Ooh, that was long. So we have to optimize sacredness. Our sense of the sacred. Wow, wow, wow. That was already 30 minutes, and that yeah. blew by. And that's, uh, that's a lot of notes. All right. Uh, why study this problem, the religion problem, the religion of no religion problem? Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's because we need to, to develop an account of wisdom to solve for and help ameliorate the meaning crisis we find ourselves in. Well, So we want to consider what a religion of no re- religion would encompass. Yeah, and, you know, we got to look into the problem of religion because many many may not see it as viable, you know, particularly mm-hmm. because of all the trauma of the 20 and 21st century and, you know, or even the trauma of like, if you, you know, you, you've heard the term recovering Catholic, you know, I'm mm-hmm. a recovering Catholic. Okay. Mm-hmm. So returning back to tr- traditional religion might not be viable for some. So we have to figure out. Yeah. For many, cause we have an increasing number yeah. of the nuns and that's not N U N S nuns. That's the, I don't believe in anything. Yeah. The N O N E S yeah. nuns, no so religion. We need a, comprehensive set of psychotechnology that uh that set within that are set within communities of practices that allow for uh comprehensive transformation of consciousness absolutely because we still need what religion used to do for us which helped us cultivate a sense of wisdom and awe and 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 an individual's grounding within uh, let's say a familiarity group that can help you like you know a, a community of people mm-hmm. the communitas you know because that's one thing that religion is. is really good at doing is mm-hmm. building a sense of community between mm-hmm. people and i we've definitely lost that you know we have a million and a half different communities right now you know there's different communities on the facebook different communities within the within the youtubes different communities the the gamer community this community that we've community, even lost we don't actually have in any, modern philosophy yeah because philosophy means the communal love of wisdom so mm-hmm. it's the love of wisdom philo sophia yeah. love of wisdom but philo is the type of the love that is a relationship yeah, yeah, friendship the, kind of love yeah. so it's one that's done in a communal fashion this is so enriching for our cultures so we do need something for the spiritually hungry because we find so many people saying well i'm not religious but i'm spiritual so people are still mm-hmm. obviously still leaning towards there's got to be something i just got to find a way that relates to me in these modern times and now we're going to consider why organized religion no longer is the option that's going to cover all the bases for everybody on this planet. Nor are our pseudo-religions, our ideologies like Marxism, a solution yeah. for what's happening in our modern age. So we need a comprehensive set of psychotechnologies to help transform our character and our culture in a way that is analogous to what religion used to do for us. So uh, religio versus credo. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about credo. What does that mean? It's it's I believe it's a perspective or it's a propositional knowing in the having mode, and is willful assertion. Um, yes, and of what should be believed as far as this or that religion is so concerned. It's not necessarily from reason. It's 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 from just pure assertion. It's willful assertion, mm-hmm. and it's it's definitely coming from that having mode orientation rather than the being mode. It's absolutely uh, propositional type of knowing and we're, we're seeing this willful assertion of belief take on religion becoming super dominant in our world today mm-hmm. and not just in religions but in all kinds of ideologies this party that party so well, on and yeah. so forth and so that that creedal dominant gr- dominance you know you could you could um yes it's not derived from reason but it's asserted nonetheless yeah you know you could like see that it's like you know like how you know 
uh, say you're an activist for whatever cause that's, and I'm not talking about the high level ones that, you know, know the literature or in deep. I'm talking about, you know, your normal street poster holder. They just say things. The bandwagon jumpers. Yeah. yeah. So the, the creed has this dominance and it has a functionality to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you it's know, all about power, it, dominance, it, control, us versus the other. Yeah, I mean it, but you know, there is a certain amount of control that you know does serve a function. I there's won't say the function, function is good or bad. There is a functionality a function. aspect to credo that we should separate from the credo dominance mode of yeah. propositional knowing and willful assertion, yeah. because whatever region we have for taking part in re- religio, which is ritualistic uh, endeavoring towards a, high, a sense of the sacred. Mm-hmm. Um, it, the reasons for it must be compelling. And that's why people got so stuck on that propositional assertion mode. is mm-hmm. because, of course, we're looking for compelling reasons to get people in touch with the, the religio, but today we're going to need something that is a little bit more open-ended. Yeah, uh, what was the term? Indispensability mythos. Yes. So you know, to a certain extent, like extent, credo is indispensable. It, it allows us to have you know, like our celebrations and our souvenirs and our things that that you know, like your celebration is a time to get together to mm-hmm. get with people and celebrate. But then you have you know your souvenirs and things that are. Um, uh, what do you call them that are symbols that are tools in order to get you into a mindset to or to keep track of information that would be too much for your brain like mm-hmm. but it we shouldn't be confused with the metaphysical necessity the need for this the necessity we have for something that's beyond just this for, for religio yeah. yeah for a relationship with what is beyond us and what encompasses and unites all of us so we do need compelling reasons for religio for taking part in this kind of spiritual work and so you know, to he, a certain extent there are certain things that you know I, I, I don't i don't want to necessarily say this way but i can't say it any other way that like we do need to make or we need to it is an indispensable the or the proclaiming things is indispensable for us in certain circumstances actually for sure. the for the sure. most part we need we need to be able to you know say okay well you know i think this and believe this and really mull this over and do that you know the, i guess the problem comes when you just, just stop except baby jesus into when you your heart ab- when you get absolutist over it yeah and yeah. it's closing off any further conversation or consideration mm-hmm. yeah. we gotta re- we gotta keep the conversation open-ended we gotta be able to invite everybody into the conversation yeah. and always and never think that we've gotten to the end of our understanding as a species. I mean, we're always going to be learning more and gaining mm-hmm. further wisdom, even about the ancient texts mm-hmm. and the ancient myths that yeah. already exist. So we went to signal detection theory, mm-hmm. which is uh, we're always facing these perennial problems. Yeah, you these know, recurring problems. There's either too much info. Well, actually, it's both. There's too much info. At, like you know, like if you're if you're looking at me right now, I've got a shirt. It's got a certain quality of texture we're sitting in certain type of chairs the lighting's a certain way all this yeah there's just way too much but then also the other end like what he said you know from the waist down there's not enough information so Mm -hmm. at the same time there's too much and not enough um and it's ambiguous which is too much and which is not enough it's often both signal detection theory we're always facing these recurrent problems there's often both overwhelming 
or ambiguous or not enough information. So yeah. either you got too much information or you've got not enough or ambiguous information. Sig- signal is, of course, the info that I want or that I need, but the noise is info that I don't necessarily need or want that could be distracting yeah. or misleading. Yeah. So he gives us this great gazelle example. There's a noise in a bush. It could be an important signal, or it could just be the wind rustling in the leaves, mm. and, which, of course, would be irrelevant. So the signal to noise is a matter of, of our relevance realization, once again. Yeah, and there's, there's, always an overlap. there's always an overlap between signal and noise. Yes. And in the case of the gazelle, it's that rustle could be the wind or a small critter, or it could be the leopard. And you don't and, know that zone of overlap. Is, and, I don't know. And yet. then there's the cost of you know, like, well, if you're running at if you're running at the wind all the time, you're you're, you're wasting up all your bioeconomy. Yeah. Um, and also, any new info you get will suffer from this problem. Is mm-hmm. it noise info or is it right. signal info? So we need a way to narrow in on what's relevant. And the more you regress into, like, take the time to really figure out whether mm-hmm. it's signal or noise, mm. the more time it takes, right. or the more energy right. it takes. Exactly. So there's a cost yes. to it as well. Yes, there's the time cost to figure it's out. It's a risky, just perceiving is a risky game. That's right. Every and act, even the act of perception, is always a gamble. So the tra- the, the trade-off that we have between uh, signal and noise is setting the criteria. Uh, mm-hmm. or, so what he calls the decision line is this line that cuts mm-hmm. between. So if you set it the line too high, um, like too much into the noise end of things, mm-hmm. um, uh, you're just getting way too much noise, and it's you know not useful. If you set yep. it too low, you lose signal. You lose. So where to set the you line? Lose signal. And yeah, and you no, lose new information. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know where do you set the line? And there's no algorithm for setting line. There's no perfect little equation yep. that you can you know put to know exactly whether it's the whether it's the leopard or you know the breeze that's right so he continues this is like so if gazelle one bill sets the line uh, the line too high he's always fleeing and running away wasting yeah, energy he's too much noise and every time he hears a rustle of the leaves he's he freaks he's out freaking out and then you know and then tom over here is just laughing at him and Tom set, you know, Gazelle Tom sets his line too low, and it's just like, ah, it's just the wind. Every he time. only acts on what he wind. truly believes and already knows. Yeah. So his noise Until input he is low. He misses, so he misses signals that could be important by setting yeah. his criterion too low. He laughs at the noise and enter the leopard that's biting that, him. Then eats him, and he does. And, and then, well, him. he's got the signal now that there's a leopard, but unfortunately, it's too <laughs> right. late. It's too late. <laughs> it's yeah. attached You're to right. him. So there's two errors: missing signal yeah. and mistaking signal for noise. Yeah. Now most gazelles have their criterion high just like deer do you know because, they'll move yeah, at the slightest yeah, thing in this in this circumstance missing signal is worse than ha- having too much signal so we need to be flexible in how we set yeah. criterion this is why perspectival rather than propositional knowing is so important perspectival knowing is our situational awareness yeah it, yeah it, yeah you know we need to set it in a way that is deeply contextually sensitive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is what your consciousness does through constantly narrowing in and then expanding back and then well well, and one thing is if you're sitting there and there is no breeze and you hear that oh boy now you have two different signals that's right you have oh no breeze and likelihood of your consciousness says oh but there's no breeze tonight Mm. what is that Mm. that's good that's a great example so we need to be flexible in how we set our criterion and lao uh, stated that one of the functions of consciousness is to set 
the criterion for our awareness, yeah. to be able to do relevance realization within our perspectival knowing. Yeah. So credo is setting the criterion on religio yeah. to determine what puts us in contact with religious experience and what isn't putting us in contact. Yeah, and he he, he went over two, and I'm going to just do it real quick. But that's yeah, this is two 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 ways to do this, right? Mm -hmm. You can there's an absolute final place um, to set the criterion. That's right, and and that's that's very perilous and ridiculous, and there's a bad way to do it. And that's, that's the that's absolutist how, that's totalitarian. Yeah, yeah, the most awful things we've seen are coming from that. Yes. The second way, which is the better way, is to continuously set the criterion optimally. So as mm. you're going, and not the most or the least, but the optimal for any given point in time that you're at. Mm. So mm. yet again, very perspectival. From you your like, perspective, what you're going through, you need to be able to set this line to be able to sift it out yeah. as you're going. Yeah. Because um, when we get too absolutist, you get things like what happened during the Holy Wars or manifest destiny and things like this. Yeah. There's this super absolutist belief that's happening that's this proclamation and you're excusing all kinds of horrors yeah or there, to there, get the job done there is no god except for the revolutions so. right yeah <laughs> there you yeah. go dangerous mm. to set these our credos in an absolutist fashion this is why that changing of the narrative order into a transjective orientation to mm -hmm. life and an open-ended narrative mm. story is so important this is what the religion that is not a religion is attempting to do and this is just the very beginning groundwork laying the first bricks to a new cathedral that may take 200 500 years to build but we're beginning right now so we're going to acknowledge the centrality of the religious experience of religio and we're going to look for open-ended mythos that is transgressive so we're looking we've looked at the functionality of credo and let me move on here because i'm gonna look on the wrong page mm -hmm. We, we, we can set the criterion with mythos, but not in a final, absolutist, conclusive way. We want to keep it in that constant optimization. Yeah. That's what I was looking uh, for. Very much like the gazelle, you know, uh, uh, oh, it's not windy today. Yes. What is that? Yes. <laughs> Thus, the religion that is not a religion would always have credo in service of religio. So Arthur verse, verse Lewis wrote a book, The New Inquisitions, that they showed on the screen and warning us about heretics, basically, and, and, how, and how heretics and the, the old inquisitions basically trained the West for totalitarian regimes and ideology. Sure. That's why we're yeah. in the mess we're yeah. in. Yeah. 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 Um, Talking about breaking it down, though, man, because now we're getting into solving for the postmodern critiques, some of which have some relevant points, but the solutions that we've been offered so far by postmodernism is just more like Marxism and it's not working. It's, well and maybe they're not necessarily solutions. They're just proclamations. They're they're sometimes they're good points that they're proclaiming. That's you know, right. Like, but it's we're not getting into our being mode into a perspectival orientation in a way that we can actually approach solving these things. So we gotta get to uh Post postmodernism or meta modernism, yeah. and that's that's really the stage. Or that just just get rid of is in right now. Get rid of the rid of the word modern because modern architecture sucks. And I mean modern period architecture. That stuff sucks. Modern art sucks. Uh, postmodernism, you know, after the modernism sucks. You know, let's just that's, uh, that's why we got to cover all term the, for the them trans, all now. The transjective. Yeah. Uh, let's call it the. Uh, 
you know, uh, instead of the postmodern or the postmodern. Go. Well, that's just you know, like because right now all we have is metamodernism or post-postmodernism. That's that's the two terms. I'm glad that we've gotten to post-postmodernism. A lot of people aren't aware of that. It happened like 15, 20 years ago. Transjectivism. Yeah, right. Yeah, Yeah, put an ism at the end of it and you'll ruin it. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Isms, ists and isms, two of the uh, worst, or the, the nastiest suffixes Often. we have in the English language. Often. Well, we get too convinced that they're the one and only thing, yeah. you know, the one and only way. And it's yeah. not, you know, all the different ways, Buddhism, Christianity, so on and so forth, are all, like I've said this so many times on this podcast, are all just various cultures, various humans' ways of attempting a relationship with the infinite. Mm-hmm with the divine, with that which is beyond us. And, of course, being what we are in the midst of our evolution, we walk in talking primates, we're going to fail at that constantly. We're, but we're going to continually be able to get better and better and better as we optimize. And thank God for Mr. John Vervakian aiding us in this time. And I think this guy is one of the heroes of our time. And I, uh, I'm not one to jump looking for heroes by any means but i was looking for the for the people that are the helpers you could say you know how mom always says when you see tragedy and strife look for the helpers so uh we're, we're at uh 30 11 and uh that will segue us into the three levels of mythos right on let's go all right guys we're jumping back into this episode of awakening from the meaning crisis if you guys are enjoying the show make sure to like and subscribe us here on Actually, and go over to John Bervakey's page. We've got links on uh, in our summary here. Go ahead and give Bervakey some love as well, because he's got a lot going on that follows this series, such as his After Socrates series and many examples of actual circling, dialogos-style conversations, which is a new form, or not a new, but a resurfacing and a reviving of an old way of communal conversation that humankind has largely forgotten about but it's it's an incredible tool that we have at hand to be able to engage our distributed cognition our collective intelligence get it all working together all right fam yeah i think i'm good where we're at so here we are guys jumping back in next i think that the religion that's not a religion should, uh, when it's crafting its mythos and understanding that credo is always in the service of religio, it should always understand the mythos as being beholden to sort of the three levels that we've been talking about here. So you have the unconscious level, right? This is the level at which relevance realization is taking place. Right? Most of the relevance realization that's going on for me, <coughs> I do not have introspective access to in any way. <coughs> and this, of course, is the grounding of my participatory knowing. Of course, you, become, you can become conscious of your participation, but that's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying that the processes by which, from which I emerge as an autobiographical ego and the world emerges as an uh, an unfolding arena, right, are ultimately below uh, the level of consciousness, and that's where the participatory knowing uh, is happening. 
And then, of course, there is the level of consciousness. And uh, this is the level of salience landscaping. And of course, this is the level of perspectival knowing. The perspectival knowing is grounded in the participatory. And the perspectival knowing with the situational awareness that I've just talked about, of course, makes possible uh, the procedural knowing. These are tightly intermeshed as well. This is where I am, right, consciously directing my interactions in order to um, appropriate affordances given to me at this level, and I'm appropriating those affordances by cultivating skills so that my coping turns into skillful uh, interaction. My coping caring becomes uh, skillful action and apt sensibility. And then, of course, this passes into the cultural level. This is the level of distributed cognition. And this is the level at which we are trying to right, communicate. So this is, this, is, this is the level at which connections are being made. This is the level at which connections are being sensed and internalized. And then this is the level at which connections are being shared. And so what we have here, of course, is the whole machinery of mythos and the machinery of science and other things such as that, but I'm going to, although that's at the cultural level, I'm taking it out because what I want to concentrate on here is addressing this. So, as I said, this will pick up on our propositional knowing, but of course the mythos also points down towards right, all of these. Because here we have credo in the service of religio. And so any mythos is going to understand itself this way, if I'll put it horizontally, as always in the service of religio, which means it is always going to also be directed, if you'll allow me, downwards right, to the procedural knowing, the perspectival knowing, and the participatory knowing. So it should be uh, a mythos that is explicitly committed to both of those in an integrated fashion, that the credo, the paradigmatic propositions, the paradigmatic pictures, right, are always in the service of religio, and that the mythos, therefore, is directed towards accessing, activating, accentuating, right, appreciating the procedural knowing, the perspectival knowing, the participatory knowing. So, 
it should be, given, given the argument, oh, this is very tentative here, what it should be doing is once you, you've, got, you've got this uh, programmatic framework in mind, then what it should be doing is cultivating an ecology of psychotechnologies. An ecology that it is designed to be both top-down, it reaches from the propositional down to the participatory, but also is open to and allows bottom-up emergence from the participatory up through the perspectival, through the procedural, and into the, the propositional. So I've tried to indicate to you what that ecology should look like. You should be setting up psychotechnologies, sets of practices and cognitive styles that have complementary relationships to each other, that have uh, sets of corresponding checks and balances, strengths and weaknesses, so that you have a dynamical system that is reliably complexifying in a reliably self-correcting manner. Which means we need to do something very important. And this is an idea that emerged in a discussion with Jordan Hall. And he put it this way, I think, which is a very interesting way of putting it. We need a meta-psychotechnology that is designed to give us, move us out of the intuitive construction of psychotechnologies into the more explicit, so two points here, the more explicit creation of psychotechnologies and explicitly the task of trying to cultivate an ecology of more explicitly engineered psychotechnologies. So this would be the meta-psychotechnology. So this religion that is not a religion should give people ways of cultivating this meta-psychotechnology meta as a way of crafting the ecology of practices for addressing the perennial problems in a way that is always consonant uh, with uh, and uh, mean coherent with worldview attunement. I think that there are deep connections between the capacity for collectively creating the meta, and you have to do this collectively uh, because that's how psychotechnologies are created, right? The capacity for creating this collectively and the individual uh, virtue, meta virtue, because that's what it is, the meta virtue of wisdom, there's deep connections for that. The more the people are individually cultivating, um, because wisdom is basically a way of cultivating and coordinating the individual virtues. We'll come back to that. So you need individual wisdom, the meta-virtue, in order to collectively right, pursue uh, the creation and the, cult the ongoing cultivation of the, the meta-psychotechnology that will allow us to engineer individual psychotechnologies and to cultivate an uh, ecology of psychotech that reaches right, comprehensively down to our participatory knowing and affords comprehensively the emergence up from our participatory knowing. <coughs> so
So I, I think those are some very general structural features. Some things we, we uh, might be wanting to do at a, a more organizational level is, and this is extremely tentative, um, extremely. So what might it be to create a, a, that open-ended credo? Well, we have something like that already because of the emergence of um, the cyber technologies that are being increasingly integrated with the psychotechnologies. <coughs> and, it, I, I, and I'm using this just as an analogy, but we have something like Wikipedia. And what's interesting about the Wikip Wikipedia is, is the way it's generated, the way it's maintained, the way it's revised. It's done in this collective, cooperative fashion. Um, and it has um, both a, a, a quite, you know, reliable stability, but also a quite reliable uh, evol evolution. W and what's interesting is I I've recently, exp uh, with the work of, uh, with the work of Konstantinos Zenios, um, created uh, something like this for uh, one of my courses. Um, and and the, what we did there in one of the courses at the university is got former students uh, to grace basically create a wiki of some of the main ideas, uh, main themes, main arguments in the course. And, um, and what happens is people, of course, get much more uh, involved in a participatory fashion with the generation of sort of the credo for the course. And, and what they also do is, right, is they create something like the Wikipedia that gives people much more interactional and evolving um, content to work with. So you get sort of this uh, presentation of what's paradigmatic and prototypical um, for the course, but in this collective, uh, dynamic, and ongoing fashion. So perhaps we could think about creating a credo analogous to that, where we create something like a wiki, uh, a credo wiki, for example, um, by which groups of people that are interested in creating ecologies, uh, practices, and psychotechnologies uh, can communicate with each other uh, for how to adaptively set the criterion and how to uh, constantly re-engineer uh, the creation of uh, the meta the meta psychotechnology that will help to guarantee maybe that's too strong a word help to promote reliably promote both the bottom up and top down functionality of this ecology of psychotechnology. Maybe that could be set in conjunction with a co-op co structure of these various communities where they are co-opting together to create a shared curriculum, a shared credo in this wiki manner in which they are also um, trying to afford a kind of synoptic integration, a shared vocabulary not imposed as an ideology, but to allow for transformative and bridging insights and discourse between the various groups um, so that they might uh, 
be able to afford each other's uh, development and enhancement. Now, as I've said, all of that is not, th this, I am not presenting a utopic vision. Um, that, that, that's not what's going on. What's going on is people are already doing this. They're, they are already trying to create these ecologies of practices. They're trying to create ways of talking to each other, setting the criterion, and they're making use of social media. They're making use of the internet. They're making use of cooperative, dynamic forms of social organization. I think all of those could be appropriated in um, a way to help bring about this religion that's not a religion. And what I've tried to do is offer some suggestions on um, things to keep in mind um, and at least some potential methods for helping to bring this about. Whether or not this functions, whether or not any of this takes root, um, again, it, it's not even up to me. I'm not some sort of linchpin or pivotal figure. I'm just trying, <laughs> this sounds so, so insufficient. I'm just trying to help. I'm really just trying to help, uh, I, I, and I want to give people some way of how to go about starting to make this work more and more powerfully and perspicaciously. All right, so I have tried to show how in three interrelated ways we can respond to the meaning crisis. I've tried to show that we can, there are sets of practices that we can cultivate as an ecology for addressing the perennial problems. We can set that, those perennial problems, into a legitimating worldview via um, the theoretical scientific machinery given to us by third generation cognitive science, 4E cognitive science. And that all of that can be set practically uh, within the project of trying to bring about the religion that is not a religion in terms of, like I said, uh, some suggestions about some structural features of what we're looking for and some organizational features of how to try and initiate that and get that going. This is ultimately going to come back to um, the dialogue that I'm going to set up between what I've argued for here and some of the other uh, prophets of this religion beyond a religion that's not a religion, like Tillich, Jung, I would argue, uh, um, also Corbin, and perhaps aspects of Barfield. Uh, and the, the, the godfather of all of that, of course, uh, is are people like uh, uh, Heidegger. So that's going to be something we're going to come back to.
but we need to do something else now that I've constantly been putting aside because it also is going to be involved in the process that I have been proposing to you and we've said it throughout which is the cultivation of wisdom and as we've seen the cultivation of wisdom as a meta virtue is deeply resonant with right, the, the communitas uh, cultivation of the meta psychology that is needed for the ecology of uh, psychotechnology. <coughs> and of course, wisdom is also needed uh, for the project of, uh, of enlightenment, as I've already mentioned. And finally, wisdom has always been associated since the Axial Revolution with satisfying those deep connectedness, the connectedness to oneself, the connectedness to the world, the connectedness to others that makes for a meaningful life. So I want to start talking now about the cognitive science of wisdom. And I want to, uh, and again, this is, this is a very exciting and hot area in, in cognitive science. There's lots going on about this right now, um, and it's becoming uh, very, very uh, pervasive. And the discussion of wisdom uh, in the culture at large is coming to the fore again. So I can't, I mean, I would like to have a series at some point that's just on wisdom. I can't do that right now. What I want to do is try and give, again, sort of um, a, a very quick overview of sort of the key players, if you'll allow me, serious players, um, in the cognitive science of wisdom business and what we can glean from that and how we can integrate it into uh, the model and picture we've been building here. So this really took off um, in the 1990s with an anthology uh, by Robert Sternberg. Sternberg, uh, the psychologist Robert Sternberg, has done a tremendous amount of work to bring back the notion of wisdom within psychology, within cognitive science in general, within and in, even within pedagogy and the understanding of education. And that um, anthology uh, really started to bring out some of the initial work that was being done, the seminal work, and also promote a lot of work that has expanded since uh, on this. I want to talk about work that was happening at around the, the same time as this, shortly uh, thereafter. So the Sternberg, uh, the first Sternberg anthology on wisdom, there's been another one since, uh, the Wisdom Handbook, was in 1990. And then uh, what I consider a really important article uh, came out in 1999 uh, by McGee and Barber. It was important because it was basically retrospective reflection on sort of the first decade of work on wisdom, but it was doing something more than that. So it was, it was definitely doing that re uh, retrospective, but it was also doing something very important something that is, is so resonant with what we've been doing here together. Because what they wanted to do was they wanted to try and link two things together in a very powerful convergence argument. They wanted to look at all of what they called the a priori 
theories of wisdom. Our way of understanding that, I think, is uh, very easy just by seeing what they looked at. They wanted to look at all the philosophical theories, and we've looked at quite a few of them. So we're, we're, we have an understanding of what they're talking about. We saw the Socratic theory, and the Aristotelian, and the Stoic, right, and the Platonic. So you have the philosophical theories of wisdom, and of course that's appropriate because philosophy uh, is the love of wisdom. But they also wanted to look at, right, and there had been about 15 years, because the anthology comes out in 1990, some work had been going on in the 80s, and then it starts to really take off. But, but you've got the psychological theories. Right? Now, these are very conceptually driven. They're very sort of top-down. These, of course, are much more empirically driven, uh, bottom-up. And what they were trying to do was they're trying to set up uh, basically a reflective equilibrium uh, between them. They're trying to find, they're trying to find through a coordinated investigation a, a, a convergent theme, both from all of the philosophical work and all of the psychological work. So looking at all of the philosophical work, what does it converge on? Same thing with the psychological work, and then can we draw it all together in a uh, uh, in, a, in a reflectively coherent fashion. And they did. They make a very powerful argument. They go through and they make an argument that what all of these theories converge on is seeing through illusions. That the core of wisdom is the ability to see through illusion. Where this means, of course, much more broadly. They're not m meaning primarily here visual illusion. They're meaning right, cognitive and existential illusion that is caused by self-deception. So seeing through this. And, they, and, and of course, because wisdom is a systematic notion, uh, and this is something they are going to explicitly argue about, this is systematically, right? So not just this illusion or this self-deception, but a systematic seeing through of self-deception. And then in something that Leo and I uh, um, uh, published, in Leo Ferraro and I published in 2013, we argued that this, of course, has a strong implication that should be filled out here, seeing through illusion and into right, some sense of what's reality or at least what's more real. Because you can only know if you're seeing through illusion if you come to something that you regard as being less illusory in nature. So th this is directly uh, the systematic, right? Seeing through illusion and into reality. Now notice what this is. This is a this is a very profound meaning, both deep and uh, pervasive meaning across many different uh, instances of where you're trying to solve your problems, achieving your goal. This is a very profound kind of insight. It's a systematic insight that we talked about when we talked about higher states of consciousness. And, and, and we'll see that McGee and Barber are using exactly this idea. It's to find across many areas in which you have been misframing problems 
to see them, to realize them as systematically right, related such that you can come up with an insight that intervenes not just on this problem but in all of these problems in a systematic fashion and thereby you start to see systematically through illusion and into what is more real. So this is a key idea as to uh, what you're trying to cultivate when you cultivate wisdom. And what we're going to do next time is we're going to continue to look at, we're going to follow this about putting the psychological theories and the philosophical theories into dialogue and to right, continue developing what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about wisdom and relatedly what is it we're doing when we're proposing the cultivation of wisdom. Thank you very much for your time and attention. All right, fam. Another episode is behind us. We've only got ten left. We can start the countdown now. Oh, man. We're going to be up to episode 40 next week. This is awesome. And man, was he talking fast in this episode. Yeah. So, so uh, three consider. levels of mythos is where we left yes, off. Yes, here we are. So there's the unconscious level, which uh, relevance realization takes place, and it's a participatory knowing. Now, like what he's saying, you can become aware of your participation, but that's... Yes, this is where the, the connections are being made unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So most of our relevance realization sure. takes place you unconscious. Know, like, um, you know, we pick up on, um, what is it, I think, yellow out of the corner of our eyes best. You know, like you don't, you don't realize it, but you're drawn over, you know, mm -hmm. like that moment before. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then there's the conscious level, which is your salience landscaping. Yes, uh, which the standing is, out of what is salient mm -hmm. to us or important to us. Oh, now I see the yellow. Why yes. is that yellow? Oh, that yellow is fruit. I this am is, hungry. This is our perspectival knowing, mm -hmm. whereas the unconscious level is our, per well, the grounding of our participatory knowing. Yeah. Yes. And um, it's also the consciousness level is also our procedural knowing. Yes. And it, our skill con uh, cultivation. Yep. And where our connections are made. Yes, the participatory builds to our procedural knowing. And yeah. this allows us for coping and caring conscious actions mm -hmm. so that so basically the unconscious level connections are being made the conscious level connections are being sensed and skillful action and apt sensibility is being evolved mm -hmm. and then we get the cultural level which is our distributed cognition yes. our communication our our um sharing of our the connections we have realized yes so this is where the connections are shared so connections are being made unconsciously connections are being sensed consciously and now on the cultural level distributive cognition is the process in which our connections are being shared so this is our myths. Yeah, this so is also science and, and so our, on. And our machinery of mythos also goes not just into you know our um, distributed cognition, but then also into our, our procedural and our perspectival and mm -hmm. our participatory knowing. So it all feeds back yep. down back and, and up forth. at the same time, yes. or back and forth if you don't like the down and the up. Mm -hmm. And the mythos is a propositional knowing that touches on all these other forms of knowing as yes. well. So credo, credo in service of religio. Mm -hmm. um, 
Mythos, we need a mythos that is explicitly connected to mm -hmm. the perspectival, the propositional, yes. the procedural, and the participatory yeah. Yeah. are various types of knowing that should be in service of the of religio, of the religious experience. So once we have this framework in mind, it should help us to cultivate an ecology of psychotechnologies that is both top top down yeah, and yeah. bottom up. Yeah, yeah. Open to more. And so we to get that and the top bottom up emergence of understanding. And the top down must allow and facilitate the bottom up yes. as well. Yes. It can't be absolutist. Mm -hmm. Yes. So we need sets of practices. That's what he means by an ecology of practices. We need various types of practices and cognitive styles like orientation that have checks and balances that help us develop that counteractive dynamical system mm -hmm. that helps us complexify our understanding in an optimal manner. Yeah. So, so we need a meta psychotech. Yeah. That moves us out of the intuitive psychotech into the explicit cultivation of psychotech. That's right. To yeah. be able to engineer these psychotechnologies that aid us in that further cultivation, as TJ was saying, of not just individual psychotechnologies, but the meta psych, the yeah. whole total meta psych psychology as well. Mm -hmm. And then there's meta psychotechnology, sorry. Yeah. And then there's meta virtue, which is individual wisdom all the way up to the community um, level um, cultivation of the ecology of psychotechnology. So individually, mm -hmm. You're using wisdom, cultivating virtue, but then we're building up now as a community that are, by ecology of psychotechnology, many different types yes. of psychotechnology that are trying to tackle the same problem. Yes, this is how we can optimize this up-down relationship. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. this is we're doing this because we want to optimize for the perennial, for these recurrent mm -hmm. historical problems that we keep running into as a species in a way that is cognizant with worldview attunement for the individual and the collective so wisdom is a meta virtue and so we, we do want that coordination of the various virtues together pursuing an ongoing cultivation mm -hmm. of our individual psychotechnologies plus the further cultivation of the meta virtues and the meta psychotechnology so yeah. for Vakey proposes because this is such ground level stuff we're literally just putting the holes in the ground and dropping the seeds we need to create something perhaps like a credopedia or wiki or a credo yeah. wiki you know basically the combination of cyber technology and psychotechnology so yeah like um you know wikipedia you know if you're in the know you know that wikipedia as a site has its problems but the idea of a wiki, like, you know, like, general, I play yeah. Minecraft. I can't survive all Minecraft without the Minecraft wiki. Wikis are super It's a group useful. of people within the Minecraft yeah. community that put up information. Distributive cognition. Yes. Um, Ever-evolving. And, and, well, it's, it's collective and ever-evolving. Yes. So um, we need various communities to be stable. able. And yes, stable. And, and stable. Yes, yeah. yes. So various communities sharing in credo for synoptic integration to bridge insights and afford each other's development and enhancement. Can you imagine if different spiritual communities, this, particularly the serious ones, like the religious ones, were actually doing this together more? Mm -hmm. It would be amazing. Every once in a while you see it happen. And it's a really exciting thing to see when the like, Buddhists and the Christians come together in common or, cause. Or even within, say, a singular church in Christianity. It's like Bible mm -hmm. study 2.0. Yes. You know. 
you have uh, whatever you know, uh, you know, whatever United Methodist Church Bible study wiki page where, you know, instead of just sitting there for the Bible, no, it's like people are cross referencing stuff, putting more information, mm-hmm. um, allowing giving, giving you more insight, context, insight and uh, discourse and, and a shared vocabulary, a shared, yes, yes, which is important because it's like a lot of the times when trying to talk about things. Um, particularly like, you know, we're this, I would consider this, you know, a higher level university lecture stuff. And there's a lot of lingo in here that if you're not in on the lingo, you're going to have a real hard time telling what we're talking about. But this kind of wiki system will allow you to be like, oh, what's that word? Bam. Somebody's Boom. already put it up in there. Different references of where it has come up in different literature, yes. where it's come from, you know. You yes. Know. Yeah. Brendan Graham Dempsey, uh, who I know online, but I haven't actually gotten to talk to yet. I noticed had started a uh, wiki for the Awakening series in some fashion, and I'm not sure if that is now defunct or if it's on pause or what's going on, but the point that Verveke also raises here, which I think is very important, and I did not see Brendan doing this at all. I think he was doing a good job at at what he'd started. Um, We want to be very careful of developing utopic visions. We really have to be cognizant of that curb that we run into in the past. We need something that is cooperative, that is dynamic, and mm-hmm. that it, you know, allowing the insights of various cultural traditions to form together in a dynamic, cooperative mm-hmm. social organization. So in, respond, in, in responding to the meaning crisis, he laid out a, a few things we're going to need. We're going to need a set of practices to create an ecology to deal with these perennial problems. Yes, yes. We're going to need to look into how 4E cognitive psychology can inform, um, and not just, you know, inform as in like to know something, but inform Mm -hmm. uh, our understanding of the meaning crisis. Right on. um, To set uh, into the... Trying to decide for your hieroglyphs. Yeah, yeah, I've hieroglyphs. Give me half a second. Set into this. Uh, the, uh, oh, yeah, set into the project of uh, bringing about the religion that is not religion. Yes. So really start getting into that mm-hmm. and the cultivation of wisdom, which is yes. needed for insight and it is so, and, and this is wisdom, is needed for insight and is associated with satisfying deep connectedness. Yes, so this is resonant with our need for communitas. Yes. And we also need a project of enlightenment for the human race. And this is actually what like Buddhism calls for. And I love that Christianity, Jesus was trying to help this about as well. We need a project for enlightening as many living beings as we possibly can, satisfying that deep sense of connectedness with the world and the self, for greater meaning in life. Mm-hmm. So now we looked at the main players in the cognitive science of, of wisdom. wisdom. So mm-hmm. uh, Robert Sternberg, uh, yep. he didn't really get too far into him, but he's a uh, psychologist that uh, wrote on uh, the pe- uh, pedagogy, which is the teaching of the te- you know the teaching of the teachers, basically. Well, mm-hmm. the teaching of, but the teaching of the teachers, really, you know, getting people. You know, on uh, the same page, basically, on the same page, so then they can teach it out mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. so catching everybody up yeah. on the last 10 years of the cognitive science yeah. of wisdom yeah. understanding how wisdom is working in our bodies and brains and then there's ian and barber mm-hmm. uh, so in 1999 uh looked brought at, us the convergence argument right uh, I, I did get that part but maybe he's yeah. looking at the a priori yeah. understanding of wisdom yeah. yes so he gave yeah. us 
two two distinctive ways mm-hmm. um, or how cognitive science has studied because cognitive science covers philosophy, neuroscience, psychology, so on, mm-hmm. so, uh, like four or five different fields. Um, they're all connected to understanding the brain and consciousness in general. Yeah. So there's philosophical theories, and then there's the psychological theories. Yeah, and the philosophical is the top-down, and the psychological is from the bottom up. Yeah. So like, and we're trying to create convergence. Yes. We're looking for a convergence argument. So where do these things converge? Where what is the theme? Yeah. What's the theme between the two? Where mm-hmm. they converge? Um, mm-hmm. And so the core of wisdom is systematically seeing through illusion, self-deception, yes. and into a sense of what is more real, yes. a profound insight. Insight. Right. Insight. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And, and we're, something that is profound, so deep, but also pervasive, so deep, and covers a wide amount of considerations. And this will this this reflecting between the two will help us Realize find insights. Uh, yeah, that uh, intervene on the whole sets of problems in yeah, a systematic the, the many, fashion. The, and the many areas of misframing that we have yes. that allows us yes. to see through our, through, through our illusions into what's more real, you know, cause we have a lot of framings and we have a lot of misframings, misframings and yeah. we have grand misframings around frame, good framings and grand framings around misframings. And then you have, we're trying to be able to look framings, across yeah. them and figure out what's what, right. You know, yeah. basically find the baby. So in the we really want to highlight what's working and what hasn't worked in the past yeah. so that we can navigate with as much wisdom as, as we can cultivate together. Yeah, yeah, That's it, much. man. So it's, uh, it was a lot in this episode, but it's, it's further clarifying and helping complexify my own understanding, not in a complicated way, but in a way that is able to afford a lot of different considerations at yeah, once. Yeah. He's given us so much. I, I feel gifted by Verveke here. It's, and, and it's for free, you, too. Brother. I didn't have to go into severe college debt to get this lecture series. You know? Right. And I think most adults, even you know, even high schoolers, could hang with this. It's just oh, yeah. that it's 50 lectures. He But he builds it up in a way that you're getting every single term and a very comprehensive understanding and of what he's not, talking about. He repeats plotting. his points it a lot of different it ways. It do, even no, with the repeating, yeah. it doesn't seem like he's plotting. It's like when no. he does his repeating, it's so if one way didn't quite get it in your head, there's another way he gets it from in another way yep. and then he moves on. Many and then times, yeah. In the future, he comes back to it and does the And same this whole series starts out as like an adventure. It's like a journey into yeah, our right. deep past, you know? But it's also at the same time talking about why are we so fascinated with zombies nowadays? Yeah, and right. it's like literally bridging the gaps and helping us understand how we got here and where we actually are so that we're not in that sense of absurdity anymore. And we're able to solve for that inner sense of anxiety with the way the world is mm-hmm. And what's going on inside of our own minds, mm-hmm. and as, as we try and fit our agent to the arena, this constantly changing, very quickly moving uh, arena that we find and, ourselves and, in, and, and uh, ever increasing in velocity as well. So, no doubt, it's creating a, quite the gravity, if you will. You know, because if you increase your velocity, you get synthetic gravity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he is grounding us yeah. in an appreciation of wisdom and an appreciation of communitas, and an appreciation of the orientation of those greats that came before us, such as Jesus Christ and Buddha and others who have inspired other cultures around the world. 
and then all the nameless forefathers and mothers before we started writing stuff down. Yes, or long before, before Socrates we started writing along. stuff down in a way that would last long enough for us to go, oh, look, they were writing. The stories that you began know? as stories yeah. that we told that are now written down, but we told them for eons before we well, ever... E- even when we had uh, literacy, you know, like the Brothers Grimm, those stories were just a collection of folk stories that were just spoken. Yeah. When, when did the printing press come about? Oh, God. It wasn't that long ago. Uh, you know, 500 years ago or so uh, and then the bible was the first Gut- why was it book. gutenberg uh was the was that the first printing press was gutenberg and then the gutenberg bible was like the yes, you know I the bible right. is the the most mass uh, the most printed book on the planet i believe it yeah uh, it's uh crazy closely followed by harry potter oh <laughs> uh, you know uh, some some would venture that both are are work of fiction and fantasy, but uh, I think if you only look at good literature that way, then you're missing a lot of the. Um, well, all great stories things. teach a deeper underlying truth yeah. and can be said in words alone. So you've got to use a story as a vehicle, yeah. just like we've talked about on this on this on the series, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead. They're telling us a deeper story about how humans can get along, even when they typically are people that wouldn't get along they can find a way to unite in common cause against the greater threat and we find that the greater threat is our own capacity for self-deception yeah our own danger to ourselves and one another when we are not in uh, states of communitas and understanding so the printing press woodblock printing in china dates back to the ninth century but the gutenberg let me see here i'm gonna find out is that right? 1430? 1436? 1436. Yeah, there it is. Actually, it's been, it's, was, it's been around for, you know, uh, uh, that, well, half, half a... Uh, half a uh, yeah, in the North. West, but in the, in the East, it was really the 9th century. In the West, it was in the 15th century, yeah, so but, 1436. But the printing press took woodblock printing and made it much faster. It did, but because, actually the Gutenberg was far from the first to automate book printing. Mm. It was still... But it was still fast, yeah, a lot faster. Yeah. But you had to put all the pieces down. You weren't automating it yet. Yeah, and well, still, even you know that type like newspaper print, you still have to do. Well, I guess nowadays you can do it digitally, but for the longest time, you still would have to lay out each mm-hmm. character. But you're able to print many, 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 many copies reliably within a standardized um, format. Um, but you know, we've been, we've been figuring things out for a while and let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and be too down on humans because we're just walking talking apes yeah because what we're finding now is that there's always babies in the bathwater that we keep trying to throw away exactly there's always very important babies there there are kernels of insights and there's reasons that people came up with these strange dreamlike myths to try and teach the cultures of those times and future cultures how to deal with perennial problems and the historic challenges of our times so here we are guys we are awakening from the meaning crisis together never woke always awakening we're open-ended here there's no cap to our enlightenment and our potential for improvement which is actually an exciting story to me you're never going to get to the end there's always room to grow yep we love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Actual Live. We're going to be back next Wednesday, 8 p.m. as long as our schedules permit. And we uh, are so excited to have you guys here on the journey with us. Make sure you throw some likes and subscribes. Throw your questions or comments down there. 
uh, on the videos here, you know, whether you be on Twitch or Facebook or YouTube here with us. And check out Actual Eye on Spotify or iTunes or Stitch or whatever podcast platform you like to use. Help us get some higher ratings and reach more people with this work. And uh, that's, that's all I got to say tonight, man. Yeah, that's good for you too. All right. Love you guys. We are out. I've been Chris. I've been DJ. We'll see you guys next time. Meow.